Welcome to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm Brian Hyde, and I am joined by Eric Peterson. Eric, you're a familiar voice on this program, although it sounds like your circumstances have changed since the last time we spoke. Would you bring us up to speed on what's happening in your life? Yeah, I am now a contributor to the Satoshi Action Fund, which is a a nonprofit focused on uh, Bitcoin mining policy across the United States. When China banned Bitcoin mining, it was a huge opportunity for America to take the lead in that, and we want to be working across the states to make sure we have friendly policies to bring so many jobs and opportunities uh, to so many Americans. Now, I've heard some pretty questionable things about Bitcoin mining, you know, destroying the planet, stuff like that. But I'm looking at an article that you, along with Dennis Porter from Satoshi Action Fund, wrote for Real Clear Energy. And I learned a couple of things here. First of all, I learned that there are there really are some beneficial sides to Bitcoin mining. But in particular, there's a problem in America with what are called orphaned wells. Do you want to introduce us to this topic and then we can explore it? Yeah. So orphaned oil wells, um, you know, if you've ever driven through Texas or Oklahoma or seen a movie where you've got those old pump jack oil wells just going up and down, pulling a few barrels uh, out of the ground a day. Uh, many of those those companies just come in, uh, they buy the mineral rights for a property, put it in a well, and uh, you know they go bankrupt because the oil market is such boom or bust. And what ends up happening is they leave these wells there, and it's not just that they're not longer running, it's that they haven't been closed properly. So they could be leaking oil all over the ground, could get in the groundwater, uh, but they're also releasing methane. Uh, methane is a greenhouse gas that is more potent than carbon dioxide by somewhere to the measures of 25 to 85 percent, 85 times, excuse me, more potent. So uh, methane is really, really bad for our atmosphere when it comes to global warming. And there's a large incentive for a lot of folks to try to get this out of the ground. But there's just not enough money to go cap these wells. So they just they, they sit across our country uh, leaking oil and uh, putting up methane. Okay, and, and like you point out in the article, we're not just talking, oh, yeah, there's a handful of wells out there. We're talking, there are thousands of these wells that have been orphaned. Talk to me about, first of all, before we talk about how Bitcoin mining can help solve this problem, for people who aren't familiar with what Bitcoin mining is, can you give us kind of the layman's description of, of what's taking place there? Yeah, so Bitcoin, or Bitcoin, maybe we should start there, it's just a virtual currency. Um, it's written in a certain way, but uh, a lot of folks have been investing in it. There, it can go across borders instantaneously. A lot of people think that it's a hedge against inflation. Uh, but in order to send Bitcoin, you have to be running uh, computers on the blockchain. And these computers that are running the Bitcoin program are called Bitcoin miners. Now, the way that this mining process works, um, these computers often take a lot of energy to secure that network. Um, it, it, uh, it makes it secure. It makes it easy to transact, uh, but it does have large energy requirements. And so oftentimes you have Bitcoin miners uh, trying to get to places that have uh, both reliable and affordable energy. Okay. And you're talking in terms of like electricity, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, that, that's right. So uh, sometimes they could just be uh, hooked up to the grid, um, but a lot of times, and I think what we're going to get into, they can actually use stranded energy assets. So energy assets that would just be flared off or wasted and not put to any use whatsoever, they can take that energy and make sure that it's running the Bitcoin network, so doing something positive for the economy. So that can, that that uh, I'm just going to restate it. Hopefully, I'm understanding you correctly. That orphaned well, the the things that it would be putting off, that energy can actually be utilized to generate electricity to to power Bitcoin mining. 
Yeah, it's actually really simple. So uh, you might have an orphaned well, let's say in Louisiana or Illinois or Ohio, states that have a ton of these orphaned wells. It All they have to do is uh, hook the well up to uh, um, an electricity generator so that methane natural gas will go through there. Uh, it'll convert it to electricity and put off carbon dioxide, which, as we said, is a much less potent greenhouse gas. Turn that electricity to power some computers that are hooked up to the Bitcoin network. And they're securing the network and generating Bitcoin in return for those people who are setting up the miners. Wow. Okay. So how far, uh, or how how on site do those uh, those mining operation computers computers have to be? Is this something that can be a long distance away as long as uh, there's there's power being generated there at the site? So most of the time, they'll actually put the computers pretty much right there on site. They have basically uh, large uh, containers that look like a shipping container. Uh, and they just you know, put the computers in there. They're generating with a, a pretty simple gas generator, turns electricity, and the computers are right there uh, generating Bitcoin. Interesting. I wonder if China's regretting <laughs> that they banned Bitcoin mining. Look, I'm not going to pretend Bitcoin is you know, the answer to all of our, our you know, currency and financial woes, but it certainly seems like an alternative might be in order, considering how quickly the dollar is depreciating in value. Yeah, I, I think a lot of folks are, are concerned about Bitcoin's current price. But if you look at the people mining and the number of transactions that Bitcoin uh, has, that only continues to increase. Um, and when you talk about we're trying to have the, the real benefits of Bitcoin mining and people think that en energy consumption is always a problem. And here we can really turn it into um, an asset. Our, our hope here is that Bitcoin miners can partner with the states that have so many orphaned oil wells and help put some of that money uh, to close up these wells that would take years and perhaps even decades to close later. Uh, I know Louisiana very well. We've got over 4,500 orphaned oil wells. Uh, we were able to only close 40 last year. Wow. So if you're just doing simple math, we're talking about 100 years, um, just what we're taking the money. And so you can really divide these wells into ones that just need to be closed and aren't good for Bitcoin mining. But then those that are good for Bitcoin mining, we can immediately get them to a place that they're not no longer creating damage to our environment, and the Bitcoin miner can put money towards closing that in. So tax payers are now off the hook for closing these orphaned oil wells. Wow. I could see some people, not all, but some saying, hey, that doesn't seem fair that these people are Bitcoining, you know, they're Bitcoin mining and they're they're receiving some advantage from this kind of work. But at the same time, I'm seeing they're also doing a job that uh, the taxpayers are not being taxed to pay for. So it seems to me like this could be a win-win situation. I really think it's a win-win-win situation, right? It's a win for the environment. Um, if we close all of these orphaned oil wells, it would take somewhere between two to five million cars off the road in terms of CO2 every year. That's a huge environmental benefit. You know, it's a win for taxpayers because their money isn't going to close up these wells or the money that they're spending is going farther to close up these wells. They'll get more bang for the buck. And it's a win for the Bitcoin miners who are getting, you know, energy that was going to be wasted energy uh, and put into our atmosphere and turning that into Bitcoin to create jobs in the, a lot of times very rural um, downtrodden communities, because after you get an oil bust, right, you can have some of these towns are just looking for jobs. Yep. I used to live in Oklahoma. I remember there, and this was back in the 80s. And I remember even then, you know, there were places where, where the oil boom ran out. And yeah, it was uh, town, towns were dying on the vine. So I have to ask you, Eric, um, the, the oil companies, the energy companies that are out there, you know, that, that own these wells, do, do they welcome this kind of uh, partnership? 
so the orphaned oil wells are not owned by companies that that is why they're in fact they are orphaned right there there's no owner that can be found um, of that orphaned oil well and so that liability goes to to the taxpayer or the states to close up now that said i think um, a lot of the energy companies have really been looking into bitcoin mining as a way to both be pro-environment and generate extra income uh, if you go to north dakota for example they have a ton of flared natural gas they have very um, strong flaring rules and a lot of Bitcoin miners have been able to partner with them. So they're not just flaring that gas, but turn it into Bitcoin generating return. And again, uh, doing something better for the environment that would be happening otherwise. So it's a, it's a real, again, it's a win-win situation for both energy companies, the environment, and the Bitcoin miners. Is there anything either from a regulatory or just a political standpoint that stands in the way of this becoming a more widespread practice? Or is it just something that takes some time to catch on and spread? You know, I, I think what, what's going to happen here and what we're hoping to do at Satoshi is bring this idea to state lawmakers. We, we've had a lot of great conversations with folks who are very excited about what's going on here. Um, and I, I think that they just need the idea. They need some legislation. They need to understand this better. So um, education is something that we're, that we're really thinking about. Uh, we hope the op-ed gets spread around. We've been spreading it around and, and, and tweeting it out. And we've got a lot of great responses. And we're very excited about all that. All right, we got about a minute left here, Eric. I want to shift gears just briefly, just because I know that you are are pretty knowledgeable about Bitcoin, and with with some of the uh, currency instability that we're seeing, not just in the dollar but in other uh, currencies around the world. Um, what's your take? I, I know Bitcoin and other cryptos have been pretty volatile, but is, is Bitcoin still, in your mind, kind of a, a, a worthwhile place to explore? Yeah, for, for all the cryptocurrencies that have gone down, I mean, Bitcoin remains the one that people trust the most. It has the longest track record. Track record. Institutions continue to adopt Bitcoin as either investment portfolios or payment methods. Uh, so if you're looking for you know the, the top, top tier, it still remains Bitcoin. Uh, many of the other projects that sort of boomed and bust have worked their way out of the ecosystem at this point. So, uh, you know, we're certainly going to be in for volatility. That's you know, going on in the entire economy right now. And Bitcoin yeah. certainly isn't immune to that. But, um, you know, it certainly, I think, is is well positioned to weather these tough times. All right. We are talking with Eric Peterson. He is a policy advisor to Satoshi Action Fund and a contributor to Young Voices. I'm having I have a link to the article that you co-wrote with uh, Dennis Porter in. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes. Eric, where can people find you on social media? Uh, they can find me at Eric underscore Peterson uh, right on Twitter. And, uh, you know, please follow uh, Satoshi Action Fund as well if they want to learn more about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Caleb Franz back to the show. Caleb is the program manager at Young Voices and also the host of the podcast, Profiles in Liberty. Good to catch up with you again, Caleb. It's good, as always, to uh, be chatting with you, Brian. Well, we got a doozy of a topic today. And, and maybe it's the fact that, uh, that you're in Kentucky. I think of good Kentucky whiskey when I think of, uh, you know, of Kentucky. But we, we've got this wonderful article about how bourbon should be able to, to be produced at home, just like people who do craft beers at home. What's good for beer should be good for bourbon. Make home distilling legal. And I have to admit, you know, I know I... I'm kind of a teetotaler, so so I'm not in the know on a lot of this, but 
I didn't realize that uh, apparently it's it's still really illegal for people to distill, you know, hard liquor, but uh, but apparently, you know, craft wine, craft beer, that kind of stuff they can they can do without much trouble. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, back in the uh, late 70s when President Carter um, essentially uh, legalized the production of, of home brewing, um, that really unleashed a, an entire craft beer revolution. And you can do this with wine as well. The only thing that, that still isn't quite there is with uh, distilled spirits. Um, this is a, I think, kind of a backwards way of, of looking at, at this. This has been the case for, for well, I mean, since pro, uh, prohibition, uh, really, um, ever since uh, it was it was legal to buy and purchase and sell um, alcohol once again. Um, it uh, still was not legal to to produce uh, to produce these spirits in, in your own home. Um, a lot of this is for tax purposes. A lot of this is for regulatory purposes. Um, but essentially, what all this does is really create uh, a a sort of uh, a sort of higher tier, a higher class of um, of those who can and those who cannot create. And it's really nonsensical when you think about it, because in order to be able to create any sort of distilled spirits, you have to know what you're doing uh, in order to to get a license to be able to do this. Well, in order to know what you're doing, you have to practice. Uh, and in order to practice, you have to start somewhere. Now, unless you are well, uh, well ingrained into the family of a, of a major uh, distiller, then most people have to do this illegally. And really, there's no reason for that. So I have to ask, why was it that uh, this remained illegal? Okay, prohibition came and went. I mean, my my parents were little kids when prohibition ended. But uh, talk to me about why why was it still illegal? I guess at that time it was still illegal uh, for people even to do uh, you know home home brew beer and that sort of thing. Was there a reason why that was kept off limits to to the public? Well, uh, largely for tax purposes. Um, this is uh, something that the, the federal government wants to ensure that they can get their hands on as, as much as possible. And, and to those revenuers. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, it, it, to be clear, this is not just illegal on the federal level, but also on the state level, which is where, um, you know, the, the majority of, of my article um, kind of focuses on is that it's it's kind of absurd that this land of bourbon that we find ourselves in where I am here in Kentucky, um, that uh, the, the very people who pride themselves on their heritage of, of bourbon can't uh, distill spirits and partake in that heritage in their own home, at least not legally. Um, and that is is quite a, a backwards way of looking at things. Some states have adopted laws that uh, should should anything happen on the federal level, where um, where uh, where they remove that prohibition, so to speak, of, of distilled spirits, of, of home producing uh, distilled spirits, that it would be immediately legalized in their state. And that is something that I think Kentucky and other states can do as well. Um, it's only a very small group of states uh, currently uh, that have laws like that on the books. Um, but I do think it is something that uh, if there was anything to do at this point for, for states, that would be a pretty 
uh, quick and, and easy thing to to help uh, adjust this uh, this piece of, of outdated uh, legislation. I mean, I'm trying to think beyond just you know the tax revenues and 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 that regulatory part. Is there any other justification given for why um, those in authority don't want people? You know, operating stills or um, otherwise, you know, uh, creating alcohol. Because I don't imagine this is something that, that that many people do in the first place. Well, the argument, one argument is that um, it is more dangerous. Um, there's the greater potential for um, explosions to occur uh, in, in craft uh, distills, uh, distilleries, as opposed to creating beer or wine. Um, and there is a little bit of validity to that, but the practicality of that happening is incredibly low. Um, I mean, people are, as you mentioned, you know, there's already a group of people who uh, do this regardless of the legality of it. And uh, you don't really see uh, home, home uh, stills blowing up on the nightly news every, uh, every <laughs> other week. Um, this is not something that is, uh, I think, it, it's something that, that should be taken into consideration. People should obviously know what they are doing. Um, but there's a way to go about that, and there's a way to even regulate that without completely prohibiting uh, the practice in and of itself, and I, I think that's really the clear takeaway: is that we can we can be smarter about this than just having a blanket ban saying absolutely no one can practice this in their home whatsoever. Yeah, the the act of distilling is not criminal in and of itself, is it? No, it's not. Uh, it's it's only you can you can get all of the, you can get all of the ingredients. You can get a still. Um, all of that is perfectly legal. Uh, the only thing that uh, makes it illegal is, of course, whenever you transition from whatever it is that you're working on into actual, actually producing uh, alcohol. Um, if you want to distill water, you can do that. Uh, there's plenty of things that uh, that you can that you can distill um, that is perfectly legal to do so. Um, it's just whenever you try to create uh, alcohol, that's that's when it crosses a line uh, on wow. a on the federal level. Not even when it's not even when it's like you're you're exchanging it or entering it into commerce. I mean, like a person couldn't uh, distill their own for personal consumption. It would still be illegal, right? That's right. Yeah, and and that I think is uh, the real um, to me. That to me is is really the real uh, catch to this is that. Even those who, uh, for tax purposes, you know, if they want to open up their own uh, distillery in their own home or something along those lines, you know, that's one argument. But uh, for people who just want to simply uh, enjoy the craft of of creating whiskey or bourbon in their home, um, that isn't something that should be a criminal activity. That is something that hobbyists should be able to enjoy. That is something that people who want to practice a little bit because maybe they're curious about the the entire industry but don't want to go full uh full uh, full steam ahead with uh creating a business uh right out the gate that should be an option for them uh whereas legally it's it's not currently and and the only way that they can really do that um is is to break the law wow Gosh, that doesn't leave a whole lot of choices. Um, so, are there any organizations? I assume the uh, National Association of Distillers <laughs> may not be behind this because they don't want the competition, or are they supportive of that? Um, I'm actually not sure about uh, about that specific group, but I do know that, um, for instance, whenever I I first wrote this article, there was a tremendous amount of support from 
um, a lot of uh, of distilling groups, um, specifically for the purpose that yeah, this is this is uh, quite a ridiculous uh, law that that doesn't really make any sense in the modern context, especially. Um, things are safer than they ever have been before. Uh, things that would have been dangerous back in like the 1920s or 1930s or 40s are not the same. <laughs> they're not the same equipment that we'd be working with today. Uh, this is uh, more or less purely for uh, tax purposes and purely uh, for uh, control purposes. And of course, uh, those in the distilling uh, markets and, and commercial markets aren't necessarily going to be all that quick to change the laws because they are directly benefiting from that. Some uh, laws and some uh, pieces of legislation have been changing as of late to open up uh, room for more craft spirits, but this has uh, not been one of them, unfortunately. All right. We are talking with Caleb Franz. He is the program manager at Young Voices and also the host of the Profiles in Liberty podcast. Caleb, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can find uh, me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. You can find my show uh, Profiles in Liberty wherever you get your podcasts from. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a familiar voice back to the program. That would be Amanda Griffiths. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be back, Brian. So for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'm a contributor for Young Voices, just getting started writing on uh, international policy, as well as economics and, uh, and monetary policy and finance. I'm also currently a PhD student uh, at UCLA. Very nice. And I'm looking at an article that you wrote for National Review. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act will hurt the economy and the environment. And and I got to tell you, Amanda, I'm not a fan of the Inflation Reduction Act because it seems like just one more example of, OK, Washington, D.C. has given us something. They've given us policy. And as usual, the name is directly opposite of what it's actually tending to do. Um, first of all, let's let's set the stage and talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. What is it supposed to do versus uh, what are some of the problems that are coming along with it? Sure. Well, what it's supposed to do writ large is indeed, yes, reduce inflation. Although the problem is, of course, that by now it's no secret. The act does not reduce inflation. You have a, a UPenn Wharton assessment that's saying, you know, it's basically going to be a wash in 30 years. It's going to uh, raise uh, lower GDP and then raise GDP all adjusted. It, it, it basically evens out. It doesn't do much. So uh, proponents have pivoted to talking about some of the act's other merits and particularly the environment, all of these great things that the Inflation Reduction Act is going to do for climate security, environmental justice, all of these wonderful things that I think a lot of us really do care about and want to work on, problems we want to fix. Unfortunately, the way that the act goes about doing it uh, is not going to address the actual problem. Part of that is because there are these old regulations that were written back when you know, hair metal was popular back in the 1980s that just don't make sense today. 
I doubt people have even really taken a look at them, but this article in particular goes into the problems uh, with the regulations of the rare earth industry and rare earth uh, mining and refining production and how the act, although it attempts to dole out these tax credits and all of these subsidies to manufacturers and purchasers of electric vehicles, what we're not doing is we're not attending to the actual issues with the industry itself. In the process, we're outsourcing our carbon footprint to some of our biggest polluters in the world. Wow. Wow. Now, could could the people who framed this this legislation, could they have seen this coming or is this just one of those unintended consequences? Oops. Oh, well, now we know. They could have absolutely seen this coming. Uh, So the problem, again, has to do with a couple different things. Now, rare earths, we talked a little bit about them last time that you and I spoke. Uh, These are these um, rare earth allies. They're these blends that are found a lot of times in the devices that power our electric engines, also wind, uh, well, they power solar panels, medical military equipment, all of this stuff, even phones. And the U.S. used to be the leader in uh, rare earth industries and rare earth manufacturing. But then we had the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the International uh, Atomic Energy Agency working together. They revised their definition of nuclear source material so that rare earth byproducts, heavy rare earth byproducts got lumped into the mix of something that could potentially be uh, dangerous in terms of its nuclear risk. Now, again, this is that That's one of those unintended consequences. And right now, because of the technology that we have and what we know about rare earths, those regulations, those rules don't make sense. But what those rules did was it made it so that it was incredibly costly in terms of liability measures, in terms of just uh, in, in terms of the regulation, overhead and red tape to extract rare earth byproducts from even commercial mines, things like iron mines, things like phosphates. We have all of these rare earth byproducts that are in fact salvageable from our mine tailings there. We can't even touch them. We can't even handle them. And as a result, the vast, vast majority of rare earth manufacturing uh, and rare earth mining is happening in China which is the world's biggest emitter of CO2. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party is not particularly environmentally friendly. No. Uh, Last time you and I spoke about the uh, the CCP on trade. Now we're talking about the CCP on the environment. Uh, So this is one of those things that could have been attended to, could have been addressed, could still be addressed. I mean, the NRC could decouple these rules from the IAEA, but in general, what we need to be doing is we need to be dusting off these old books and looking at these regulations saying, this just doesn't make sense anymore. It sure seems like there's a a just full push toward uh, electric vehicles, which Look, I, I'm not going to complain, but it seems like it's it's being pushed so hard and so fast that there there are a lot of unintended consequences that seem to have come along for the ride. You point out in your article, uh, for instance, that there's a there's a tax rebate that that could kick in starting in 2024. What's the catch, though? <laughs> 
the catch is, and this was wonderfully reported, in fact, uh, by Joe Lancaster in Reason Magazine. So there are these uh, tax credits uh, for the uh, electric vehicles as long as, and that begins in 2024, as long as none of those vehicles' battery components are sourced from what's called a foreign entity of concern. China's on that list. The catch, as you point out, is that these vehicles don't exist. Hmm. And the reason <laughs> that these vehicles don't exist are partly because that we have our hands tied here. U.S. industries have their hands tied when it comes to manufacturing these batteries, these battery components. Uh, perhaps we could get to a place where we're sourcing or some of our allies are sourcing these materials uh, domestically. But the problem is, as I also talk about in the article, even rare earths and battery components that are sourced uh, in the U.S. and Western Europe often have to be sent to China for processing. Uh And that alone, that transportation cost alone is driving up our carbon footprint. So these vehicles don't exist. We have all of the incentives we need to manufacture green tech. The incentives are not the problem. We don't need subsidies. We don't need Band-Aids. What we need are rolling back this bureaucratic red tape. No, I am, you are speaking my language. So uh, government just needs to, to get out of the way in order to, to make this work. They do, and there are ways that what we have now is we have this wonderful market incentive. People want to be helping the environment. People want to be buying products that are gonna be helpful for the environment, and they want to be using companies and relying on companies that are helping the environment. Now, relying on companies that rely on sourcing from CCP-backed industries, as the majority have to today when we're talking about EVs and uh, electric vehicle batteries and, uh, and equipment, that's not environmentally friendly. That's not that's our dirty little secret when it comes to what we do for the environment. We cannot have a lower carbon footprint as long as that carbon footprint is tethered to China's. And so what we need to do is, yes, we need to look at these regulations and say, this isn't working anymore. We need to power American industries in a way that is green and efficient and is going to help the environment. We've got about two minutes left, Amanda. Talk to me about um, what can be done with, for instance, the tailings from from mining operations that are already taking place here in America. You mentioned that there's there's an overlooked opportunity there to, to use utilize some of those tailings. Absolutely. So it would take a long time to revamp rare earth mining here, but we don't have to reopen new mines. What we can do is a wonderful couple of pieces by Ned Manula. Uh, Now we have these these tailings, these byproducts that have recoverable rare earths from commercial mines, iron, titanium, phosphates. If we could just extract those tailings of rare earths from existing existing mining operations, uh, what the estimate is, is that we and our allies combined could account for about 65% of global rare earth demand. And that's currently, that's we don't have to kick any subsidies. We don't have to spend money opening any new mines. We can do that right now today. Something you point out in your article, too, that I thought really grabbed my attention was uh, this. This isn't one of those polarized, look, it's either this or it's this. This is one of those places where actually uh, conservatives and progressives could find some common ground. 
absolutely, this is great for American industry. This is great for the environment. This is great for innovation. There's no loser here. Everyone wins, including the planet. Nice. Well, I'll have a link to your article from National Review in the show notes. Again, we're talking with Amanda Griffiths. And Amanda, where can people find you on social media? Where can they follow your writing? People can follow me on Twitter at Ajax the Griff, A-J-A-X-T-H-E-G-R-I-F-F. And then I am also a contributor at Young Voices. So you can go to my contributor page there and see all of my latest stuff. Fantastic. Great to catch up with you again. Thank you. Wonderful to talk with you, Brian. Thanks so much. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Andrew Donaldson back to the show. Andrew, it's been a while since we've uh, talked. For people meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, it's always good to be with you, my friend. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, I do a couple different things. I'm a managing editor of a publication called Ordinary Times, ordinary-times.com, that we're really proud of. Been doing that for about four years. Very proud of my association with Young Voices, which is why I get to talk to you frequently. Then I got my own little program where I try to sound like you, but I always fail because I don't have that great (laughs) voice like you do on uh, Herd Tell, available on YouTube, all the major podcasting platforms. We'd love to have you join us. I'll just talk, no yelling, talk about things that matter. Don't talk about things that don't. We have a good time, good grown folk talk. Uh, but it's always good to talk to you, my friend. Yeah, what's, you, ha- you actually have a great way of saying it. To, what is it? Turning, turning up the volume on the information, turning down the noise. Yeah. Turning down the noise and turning up the yeah. information we need to discern <laughs> our times. One of the best classes I ever took in school, I took a class called uh, Understanding the Times, and it was the major worldviews of the entire world presented and i i kind of stole it from that mr stigliano if he's listening um god bless you sir from i think i think the sophomore year we did that but it was discerning your time if you don't understand the times you live in you don't have any perspective on what you're doing and then you don't really know what you're doing and you're lost all the time so when we're going to talk politics and stuff you got to have that wide perspective and that's where that comes from i love it i love it. and you are a busy guy i follow you very closely on twitter and i see you you're talking to to great people you, you talk to a lot of the the young voices contributors so i'm going to encourage our listeners you really should check out herd tell you'll find it worth your while let's talk about your article for spectatorworld.com about the gerontocracy goes on a spending spree i've noticed or at least i've perceived that uh, congress has been pretty free with the checkbook here (laughs) not just the last couple of years but but generally um Talk to me in particular about uh, when we talk about the gerontocracy, though, we're talking about a segment of Congress that has been there for a while. Yeah, I, I joked about it when they did vote a Rama. Uh, I had our good friend, Eric Garcia, who's a congressional reporter. He was on the floor for it. it. He's like, no, it was really it's 16 hours of voting, but it was really a 24 hour day for everybody because he was there. Uh, so if I told you in the abstract that we had to wheel in these 80 year old people and keep them awake for 16 hours to try to make them do their jobs, <laughs> you'd want to know what nursing home we need to mob up and go <laughs> shut down because they're abusing these poor elderly people. But that is the United States Senate in the year of our Lord 2022. It's absolutely, utterly ridiculous. I don't want to be ageist, but look, the military has mandatory retirement ages for a reason. They don't let, you know, 80 and 90 year olds do surgery for good reason. At some point, it's time to turn the reins over. And I I know you can't be arbitrators of when that is, but when you're looking at the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars we're spending, 
we have spent so much money the last few years, especially under the auspices of COVID. But let's be honest, they're always going to find an excuse to keep spending money. Maybe some young people could do better. Maybe they wouldn't. But couldn't we just try just to see if it would work? Because what we're doing now ain't working. There's a moral component here, too. And I'm thinking back to, um, I don't remember who Thomas Jefferson was writing to, but there was a, a letter that I've heard referred to as Earth is for the Living. And in it, he makes the case, it's immoral for a generation to uh, create debt that they cannot pay off within their lifetimes. In other words, to hand that down to, to generations that had no say whatsoever in the creation of that debt. And I think about that a lot as I see what's playing out in front of us. Yeah, I have a family member who will go unnamed here, but he bought a very nice RV recently. He upgraded from his old RV to the really nice one. He's laid into his 70s Vietnam vet, lost a leg in Vietnam. God bless him. He deserves everything he gets in, in life. But I asked him about it. I was like, it kind of, he's like, hey, you, you really spent some money there. He's like, oh, no. He's like, I just got the lowest payment possible because I'm going to be dead long before it paid off. So I didn't <laughs> care. So I stretched it out as far as I can. The problem is that's how I think some people in our Congress are doing it. And by the way, this isn't just the old ones. The young ones are just as bad at this because we have some real dollars that are, you know, probably 40 or under in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate. But I think there's something to that. There's no ownership of it. It's I'm holding this office. I'm going to get mine into heck with Rogers County. What happened to stewardship as a principal yep. in elected office of like, look, you're just there temporarily. You need to hand it off better than you found it. I don't hear almost anybody talking about stewardship in relation to their elected office. Boy, if they would do that and they would adhere to it, forget politics and ideology. If they just do that little piece of it, how much better would our country be? Oh, I think that's a fair point. Okay, so I have to ask this, Andrew. Is there is there any anything that could break the momentum of the spending machine as it's currently running? Because it sure seems like it, it's got a pretty good head of steam built up here. Yeah, because and here's the real the real twisted part of this. Nobody wants to deal with is what is the part of the U.S. government that we have the most say? Us, the voters, the normal folks that we have the most say over. Well, it's Congress and the Senate. Every mm -hmm. two years, everybody in the House and a third of the Senate. Every two years comes up to election. And yet that is the part of the government we seem to do the least change of. Incumbency is a massive advantage. We very rarely want to turn things over. We leave the same people in over and over again as long as they do well for us and not the general public. And we leave these folks in office for years and years and years, sometimes decades with these folks. It really is on us. And until the American people, I hate to phrase it this way because I need a better terminology for it, but we just have an amazing amount of lack of give a damn. They just don't want to pay attention to this until it hurts us, until we have a COVID crisis, until we have an economic crisis, until gas prices get high, until we have a war abroad that affects things. Then they want to pay attention, and we want to pay attention for just a moment. Until we pay attention long-term and we take a look, we started out talking about perspective. The American people are not good at perspective and not good at long-term planning. Until we're better at that, we're not going to hold our uh, elected officials more accountable. This is going to be on us to fix. Okay, I got to throw this question out for you, too. What if there were to come a point where there's a, a groundswell of support for the idea of, look, I didn't agree to this debt. And, and maybe some of the upcoming generations just say, we had no say in this matter. Therefore, we're, we're not going to take on this debt. Then what? Yeah, it's, it's and I, this is going to be, we just saw this with the student loan debt issue because it's going to get tied up in court. It's probably going to get knocked down in court after it's already started. So these poor folks are going to get jerked around again here in another year, year and a half, however long it takes. We're going to have this debate on not only student loan debt, but on national debt. We have municipalities that are failing in their debt. We've already seen it where the federal government is going to be like, well, should the government bail out municipalities? Should they bail out cities? Should they bail? They may have to bail out whole states. We better get a handle on debt 
and who's going to pay and why, I think you have a very pertinent question that we don't have good answers for because we've never really considered it. What do you do when you have segments of the country that are more irresponsible than other segments of the country? We have a pluralistic, wide society, and unfortunately, our representation represents that. I don't have a good answer for that question, but here's the problem. We're not even wrestling. Have you heard any national-level politician ask that same question you just asked me? They that's wouldn't dare. We should be, no, but that's what we should be wrestling at is like, how do you make the system work as well as it can? It's easy to bash it. I bashed it. You bash it because it deserves to be bashed. Mm-hmm. But it's got to function. And we don't want to do the base level function stuff like pay our debts, like be accountable, like do the nuts and bolts of government that don't have big buzzwords and don't have easy to notice things in the Twitter sphere and on Facebook and at the polls that get you votes real quick. But that's the stuff that's actually doing the job you're assigned to do. And until they do that, we're going to keep making the mess worse and worse. Is it likely that as this gerontocracy, you know, the people like Dan, Diane Feinstein, Bernie Sanders and and others who've been there for, you know, decades um, as yeah. they I'm trying to be gentle with this as they go the way of the world, <laughs> as they pass yeah. on and and others take okay. their place. Is there any possibility of change or is this just kind of the way that Congress gets locked into? This is how we do things. I fear it'll be something catastrophic. We've seen it before, whether it's something like a 9-11, whether it's something like World War II, whether it's something like a depression, even the housing crisis of the 2000s, that had wide-ranging political benef- you know, repercussions as we look back on it. Usually it takes something to shock everybody, unfortunately, and unfortunately it's usually something bad. We got a lot of bad on the horizon if you look around both the world and domestically, so I'm afraid it's going to be something like that. I wish we wouldn't do it that way, but my fear is it'll be that Hopefully the next generation is a little better than what we are currently doing, my friend. I think the only optimistic point that I could add to that is it is going to suck. It's going to be painful, but it's a season. And if, if we are willing to pass through it, uh, I think yeah. what would be on the other side would be a lot, uh, a lot more hopeful. But yeah, we're, we kind of painted ourselves into a pretty ugly corner, at least at the moment. Yeah, embrace the suck, the drill sergeant said, but eventually the run does end and the day does end and you do get to dinner and you do get back in your bunk and you start again the next day. We'll get through it, but there's going to be a lot more pain involved in it because we don't do the little things we need to do. But we can get through it if we just stick together and have a little faith, my friend. All right. We got about a minute left here. Andy, is there anything on your radar screen that uh, that you see as a positive these days? There's a lot of negative stuff going on. Lord knows I'm talking about it all the time. What do you see that uh, that is giving you a reason to, to smile. I, I always end our show on some kind of charity thing or somebody doing a donation thing. The charitability of the is still there. So even though our politics get uglier and uglier, and I don't know that they're even worse. I think they're just louder because of social media. Look around your communities. Times are tough. People are helping each other. People are doing charity work. They're doing food drives. They're doing flood reliefs. I We just saw there's record... Pakistan, the terrible flooding, those people have a third of the country's underwater. People in America given to them by the millions. There's a lot of good still in this country. We just need to get that transferred over to our politics, my friend. Okay. And part of that is just the awareness. I mean, if you're looking for the good, you will notice it. Just like if you're looking for the bad. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You'll notice that too. Absolutely right. All right. Tell people. Your feed is what you curate it to. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Tell people where they can can follow you, both your writing as well as your, your podcast. Yeah, four for the fire at the Twitter. Love to talk to you there. Hertel, just type in Hertel or my name, Andrew Donaldson, in any of the podcasting platforms or YouTube. We'd love to have you join us on our program. We're not as good as Brian, but we're trying really, really hard. <laughs> and ordinary-times.com, where I write with some really talented people. And I'm very blessed to get to work with the Young Voices folks. You can always find my page there as well. You've set the bar high. And by the way, you also have a have a Twitter uh, Twitter feed called uh, Twitter Supper Club. 
Yeah. I'm telling you. Anybody can join. Just take a picture of whatever you're eating, wherever it is, whoever you're eating with it, put it on there. You will be amazed how much joy that brings to other people. It'll make you feel good too, I promise. It makes me hungry, but I'm okay with that. (laughs) Great to talk with you, Andrew. Yes, sir. Take care.